32 counties united by people. My name is Una. And my name is Andrea. And this is United United Ireland. Ireland. Every week on United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. Uh, Yeah, but to do that, we need your help. Um, So get out your checkbook and write us a little check in the internet by signing up on Patreon. Get with the program of technology like we have and get onto (laughs) our Patreon page of patreon.com forward slash United Ireland and get the show out. Yes, we'd love some Christmas presents and thank you so much and happy Christmas to all of our subscribers. This week, we're going to be talking about the National Broadband Plan. You may have noticed the stories in the Sunday Business Post and in the currency about what is going on uh, with the contract that was signed and the structure of the companies that evolved from that. And uh, it's fascinating and I think the main the key word here is transparency uh, so we're going to be talking to Thomas or lack of, you know, or lack lack of, of. Yeah. we're going to be talking to Thomas Huber from The Currency about his reporting on this so if you're confused about the National Broadband Plan if you don't know what's going on this is the explainer for you is it a good thing is it going well <laughs> well no is the answer to that Andrea <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a really, really interesting uh, conversation with Thomas coming up. So stay tuned for that. But first, it's the State of the Nation. Well, Andrea, do you bring us uh, glorious news from our equitable society? Absolutely not. <laughs> it's a chit show this week. But like we get to fake bits later, so we're not all doom and gloom. But firstly, house prices have surged 13.5% uh, in, a mo- in a month. I in a year. Been. Yeah. Is it a year? I think yeah. it's a month. It's year, it's year from last October to this October, yeah. That's bananas, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's pretty wild and and, mu- and uh, higher it's outside supply. Dublin. It's supply. The more supply you have, the cheaper the prices are. It is interesting that... Um, so the government was formed summer of 2020 and a year and a half on everything that they've done or haven't done. Uh, the situation is that rents are still going up and house prices are rocketing. So speaking of rents going up and rocketing things, uh, there's a lot of rocketing on Twitter against prominent economic bros and then architects having scraps almighty and going for each other and basically calling the economic bros calling architects snowflakes and using all their flary language to put in objections and the architects are like what all we want is houses that aren't the size of hotel rooms come on it's been very uh, interesting to watch and also just so interesting to see people trying to um trying to what's the word defend bill to rent and then people who know about housing and living and what we need to live healthily being like no this is not it bill to rent is not the one unless you're an investor yeah there's a big um the one bed uh and the studio apartment defenders i don't know why this has become such a like it's almost like a housing mini housing culture war or something in ireland it's like either you are you know kind of a, a zealot when it comes to like just build whatever and it doesn't matter what it looks like and we just need housing and blah 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 or there's people going well we should probably look at what this is going to be like in about 10 years if we just have a development with you know 80% one bed or studio apartments um one of the arguments that's coming through now is like uh, what is with people when I was young I just wanted to have a hangover eat my dinner and then I was out socialising all the time I didn't want to have people over to my house it's like yeah that's a good one you're basically saying you don't want to socialise in your own gaff what a, like go get them on that one you really, like <laughs> sucker punch them with that Um, what else save no friends in one sentence <laughs> What can I just say one thing on one of the things that comes up around the housing argument, um, kind of an ideological one, is that a lot of people who want um, housing to be viewed like through a community lens and have like a diversity of people, families, um, different kind of household sizes and therefore want a broader mix of housing in particular developments. And then you have people saying, actually, 
there's you know in a really acute lack of supply of one beds, and so we should just be building those. And there, there, that's the biggest supply challenge. And when people say that they there's this word like transient that comes up, like people don't necessarily uh, people want like kind of more, I suppose, more sustained or rooted communities or whatever. And um, this sometimes gets interpreted through like a uh, xenophobic kind of lens or something that people people are like, oh, well, you're just saying that you don't want, like transient is just code for foreign workers or whatever. And you don't want these people like living, a mo- like, which is a bonkers thing to, to say. And, and I don't think anybody thinks that unless you're, you know, really spiteful or hateful or something. But what I get confused about is that the argument is kind of... Um, it's like saying that people who like immigrants and people who move to Ireland for work have different housing needs and that it's the argument kind of backfires because it's like you're basically saying, you know, tech workers need unique kind of housing, which is nonsense or foreign workers need actually one beds or whatever. And it's just like, do foreign workers and do people moving to Ireland not also deserve quality housing? like everybody else, you know what I mean? Mm. So I always find that really interesting is like we're siloing housing by uh, these like fantasy categories of profession and distilling, you know, hypothetical desires that people might have and using that as a, you know, blueprint for mass development of studio apartments and (laughs) (laughs) co-living. Okay, what else is happening? Um, Boosters are being rolled out uh, through pharmacies and GPs for over 16s. Whoop. Uh, well, they've pulled it back from pharmacies to 50s at the moment, but it will be over 16 soon. But GPs are are okay to go on boosters for over 16s going forward. Stunning, which is great. Um, not so great. 1.8 million. I thought this was mad. 1.8 million for that was designated for mental health services has been redeployed to replacing community health care organizations' fleets with low emission vehicles. So they've taken money for mental health uh, that was designated for mental health to repl- to get get it like to save the world from carbon emissions or whatever. That's bonkers, isn't it? Bon- like, can they not just find more money from? Uh, well, obviously they should be using like money that's set aside for you know upgrading our fleet of climate shit. That's really uh, well spoken, Andrea. Thank you. Straight to uh, the door, Andrea. Yeah, Make that argument. Make speech. Anyway, it's in bits. Yes. Yeah, so the government's cute little populist decision to give a hundred euro donation to against your heating bills because you know prices are soaring and inflation and all those kind of things. So, like that hundred euro to everyone in the country is going to make a difference. Um, but actually, they're going to give it straight to the energy firms. Which doesn't, well, I suppose it cuts the price of the bill, yeah, but it's but like, not the whole, we're going to put money in people's pockets. No, it's it's so bananas. What a weird way to do it. Give it straight to the corporation. Nine, danke. I think it's a very odd way to go about things now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> nothing, I mean, I just kind of, it's, it's, it's Finnegal and okay. Finfall. So, okay. um, <laughs> I'm just, I'm in the acceptance phase of this. Government. Government. I was expecting like, a, like what? That's ridiculous. Like, yeah. Oh God. Uh, Dolores Cowell's Facebook page was removed. Um, this comes at the same time that the Institute of Strategic Dialogue released their Irish report on anti-lockdown activity and the key players in that. Definitely worth a read. Um, if you have time just to see how uh, COVID really provided a, uh, the flames to the fire to getting that kind of shenanigans going and far right movements on the go. So uh, have a look at that. And finally, the trips waiver bill um, made it through the Shannon, um, which calls for fair access to vaccines around the world. Uh, we did a big podcast on that with Robbie Lawler before um, have a listen to it if you want to, but yeah, it made it through the Shannon, which would mean that Ireland would publicly support um, free access to vaccines um, around the world because we're not getting out of this if we just keep uh, injecting the rich. We need to inject the whole world. Amen. Big time. Okay. Now let's get under the hood 
and uh, start pulling the wires of a fascinating story about the National Broadband Plan. The National Broadband Plan contract was signed in 2019, which was meant to be a really massive uh, project by the state to bring high-speed internet to, I think, around half a million homes, businesses in rural Ireland uh, struggling with patchy or crappy service uh, that obviously hampers many things. The state put a figure of €3 billion on this, but said that by bringing in private investors who would be part of the entity that delivered the broadband, led by Granhan McCourt Group, that they would kind of fund and hasten the project. But that isn't really what has happened. Where the government said €220 million Euro in equity would be forthcoming from investors at the get-go, recent reporting in the currency in the Sunday Business Post has shown that instead of investment being pumped into the project, there actually seems to be a lot coming out of it. So what on earth is going on? And what is behind the Byzantine structures of these investment companies why won't the government reveal the full contract they signed with Granahan McCourt? And where's all the broadband? To discuss all of this, we're joined by Thomas Hubert, senior correspondent at The Currency, who's been doing brilliant, brilliant reporting on this. It's worth the subscription uh, prize to the, concert, to the currency alone. Um, now, Thomas, this is a, a mammoth story. It is very complicated. The currency has been essentially serialising uh, different aspects of it in your reporting. And the Sunday Business Post has uh, had a lot of good reporting on it too over the past couple of weeks. But before we start discussing the nitty gritty of it, what do you think this is a story about? Is it about a contract and a weird deal or an inefficient state or something else? I think ultimately it's about uh, public-private partnerships and the way we procure big infrastructure in the country uh, when the state decides that uh, they're not able or willing to do it alone and they want private investments thrown in. That's the format we've used for motorways. Um, it's um, in a way the, the format that's uh, being considered for a number of the, the housing projects that are needed now in terms of the housing crisis. Uh, there are various ways of doing that. Um, there can be concessions like the motorways. There's a gap funding system is what we're using here in the broadband plan we're discussing today. So um, that's really what's at the, the core uh, of this discussion. And um, is public-private partnership a good way to do infrastructure? And if so, uh, which you know constraints do we put around it? How transparent are they? And my experience reporting on both motorways and the broadband plan is so far not transparent. And um, how do we improve that going to, into the future? Mm. So the National Broadband Plan as, as a thing, as a concept even, was kind of mired in uh, delays and different opinions and, you know, the kind of stuff that tends to stall anything that politicians are trying to do that is like a massive plan. And it wasn't without its controversies as well from the get-go. Why was it so hard to get off the ground from the beginning? So the first reality is that um, the, the way the Irish population is dispersed is very uh, not dense. Like you've got a lot of ones of housing, a lot of rural housing, like where I'm calling you from today. And uh, the reality is that maintaining lines that give good connections across this type of network is difficult. And, you know, our call might drop at any point because that's the way my connection is working here at home in the countryside in County Meath. So um, the, the problem was first how to roll out decent broadband to all those premises, whether they're homes or businesses, and uh, how much it's going to cost. So we know ever since the contract was signed that it's going to cost up to €3 billion euro if, that's, if the maximum um, bill is finally footed by the government, depending on what they find along the way. And um, that's, that's the crucial issue. How do we fund that? And that's why there's been so much discussion um, since really 2015. It's been really active. It started much before that. But the, the reality that there was going to have to be a big contract to roll it out uh, has been on the cards since 2015. The cost has 
gone between anything between a few hundred million and the three billion uh, maximum uh, funding we've allowed today because there were various options considered. Do we actually go to every house, even the ones that are really far away? Uh, do we you know, restrict that to a certain number? Uh, how much of the state and the private sector are going to contribute? Um, companies like AIR, who are already building their own network, over the years decided to go further than they'd previously said. So a number of houses and businesses are actually now covered by the normal network that is not subsidized. All that has played into a very shifting picture over the years until the, the contract was signed in 2019 for the National Broadband Plan and ever after, after that as well. So along comes um, David McCourt, who was, you know, didn't, you know, just come along in 2019. Um, he, he was around for a while um, and, it seemed to me kind of watching this from afar, really, I wasn't reporting on it, that his uh, idea and his what he was going to do, it kind of became the only game in town, it would seem like keep hearing this phrase, you know, preferred bidder, which I always find strange because it doesn't really scream of, of competition. Who is McCourt? So David McCourt and his company, Granahan McCourt, uh, he's an Irish-American uh, entrepreneur. His business is based in the US and he was previously involved in Ireland in a company called Inet, which runs the, the networks you don't see uh, around towns and cities, but that, that connects the all the boxes on the streets and the, the main infrastructure within the town or within your Dublin neighborhood or Cork neighborhood. And, and those kind of uh, more wholesale networks behind the retail network coming to your door. And that company, Enet, was owned by Granahan McCourt and other investment partners for a, a number of years uh, in the early 2010s. And uh, they sold out of that at, after a few years. And so they had this previous experience in broadband in Ireland. And when they left Enet in 2018, they reinvested their experience in Ireland, the same partners, the investors who came with them in Inet uh, into this new bid for the broadband plan. And the, the the expression you mentioned, preferred bidder, that was announced in May 2019. In itself, it's a normal process in a, in a big procurement contract like that. The government receives a number of offers from bidders that are interested in getting the contract. And in the end, they select one and they do the final work with just one to dot the T's, to dot the I's and cross the T's on the contract and finally sign it. There's no point in doing that multiple times. It takes a lot of time and money. But the problem was that when they announced the preferred bidder, there was only one. And that was uh, Granahan McCourt and its partners. Um, the other bidders that were there at the start, whether it's Cyro, which belongs to ESB and Vodafone, or Air, the historic Aircom, had dropped out during the process. They were no longer interested. Um, part of the reason for that was that the, the government insisted on having a separate company running the broadband plan. And those companies weren't interested in duplicating their existing structures uh, into another one. They find that too complicated and expensive. There might be other reasons. And I, I wasn't covering that at the time so much myself, but really the, the upshot is that um, the, the bid led by David McCourt was the only one left when the decision was made. Yeah, which I suppose is not an ideal situation when you want to be kind of looking at, at different options and stuff like that. Um, so what was the deal that was struck? So there is a single contract for the entire country to go to, to connect high-speed broadband to every single house farm business in rural Ireland that will not be reached by commercial operators. And at the signing of the bid, that was... Uh, estimated to be 554,000 um, places. And um, the the reality is that some of that has already been in, eaten into by the, the commercial operators. So it's kind of shifting, but that's the commitment anyway, that number of houses and connections. That means partly building new infrastructure, partly using existing poles and ducts and all that and renting it from existing operators, combining all that to put fiber to most of those homes and the ones that are really far away from a road or from a pole or anything like that to, to have a good quality wireless connection, a small number of those, and paying the private operator to do that work, uh, first to install it and then to run it for 25 years and pay them <clears throat> as they reach milestones. So after a certain number of connections, 
And then after a certain number of years that the system is still working and well-maintained, all that is being monitored by the state and they give subsidies as the time goes by and the criteria are met. And the maximum would be, uh, that's written into the, the procurement documents, the maximum subsidy would be 2.97 billion. Um, that's including that, which in fact goes back to the state. And that's also including what they call contingencies. So the kind of worst case scenario where prices might go up for materials and things like that, that we're enforcing at the start. So it's really the maximum amount the government is prepared to pay over the 25 years. Um, there is uh, a problem with the contract in itself is that a lot of the criteria I've just described are not published. So we don't know as members of the public, as journalists, when the company is entitled to receive a certain amount of subsidy, um, how exactly is that assessed, uh, how, how are inspectors going in and, and checking for the government that the money is due, and other a lot of other detail is actually redacted from the published contract. So it's very hard to figure out exactly what the company is expected to do on a day-to-day -day basis and um, how that's monitored. So after the contract was signed, and even though we don't know, uh, as you say, all of the details of it, which is kind of a bit ridiculous, um, considering the amount of money involved and, and that it is uh, a big kind of public capital project, what happened with how the entities were kind of set up to run it? So you were saying before that like companies like Air and stuff like that, they didn't want to set up, you know, Air National Broadband Ireland or whatever. Um, so, but National Broadband or Broadband Ar National Broadband Ireland is that MBI? Is that what that's it's the name? Yeah. Yeah. So that was set up by um, Granahan McCourt. What kind of structure was set up then with the companies to go? Okay, we've got this contract. Uh, we're getting some of this funding. We're going to invest this money that has been asked of us as well, which I think was put at two hundred and twenty million. What happened next? So that was November 2019 when that contract was signed. The company, a National Broadband Ireland, existed at the time. Uh, up until then, uh, the, the bid itself was pushed by two investors. It was Granahan McCourt itself and Tetrad Corporation, which was a company started also in the US by an investor called Walter Scott, who died recently in September this year. And um, he was a... Um, uh, billionaire investor in various industries in the US throughout his life and a longtime partner of David McCourt in various previous businesses, including Enet in Ireland. And um, it turned out the day before the contract was signed that National Broadband Ireland brought in another investor that was never re reported anywhere before uh, in this particular bid. That was Oak Hill Advisors, which is a big hedge fund management company also in the US. And their main business is to invest in credit. So either loan money to companies and charge interest or um, buy credit that was already issued by companies and just buy their loans, their debt, uh, and continue to charge the interest and repayments to them. And um, after that, in early 2020, in January, when the uh, NBI company, National Board in Ireland, actually started getting in business and uh, rolling out, preparing to roll out broadband, they brought in capital from their investors. So um, I've worked out the structure only recently now that those companies have filed accounts for a full year and we couldn't see that before. And now we have the full picture of who did what in that investor structure. So um, it turns out that even though Granaham Court is considered as the controlling entity because every step of the way in every story of the building, they actually own a majority. There are so many stories in the building and so many different bits of investment coming in at every stage that when you do the total at the end, Granaham McCourt actually owns 10% or so of NBI and the other investors are much bigger. It turns out Oak, Oak Hill Investors, who has a, a formal 49% uh, ownership of NBI. In fact, when the money came in, uh, in January 2020, they put up first the majority of that. I found papers filed in Luxembourg where they have their holding company for their investment in Ireland, showing that they actually advanced the majority of the money. And then they transferred some of it away and 
I traced it through various holding companies to another Granahan McCourt Tetrad company. Uh, it's unclear why that happened. Then we see another investor come in. Uh, formally, he's only uh, the only representative of that investor is a man called Hamid Akavan Mayaleri, uh, another um, American-based businessman. He is known to be working for a, an investment fund called Twin Point Capital, but there is no you know, formal disclosure anywhere in filings by the various companies that Twin Point Capital is actually an investor in NBI. That's one question I've put to all the parties. There is no clear answer on who Mr. Akavan Mayaleri is representing, even though that's a 25% stake in this massive state contract. And then there's the ones we know, Tetrad and uh, Carnahan McCourt. So they all came in in January, put up some money, but instead of having real skin in the game by buying shares in the company and having the full risk attached to those shares. If the company doesn't work, they lose that money. What they did instead of that was they only put 2 million in shares and loaned 98 million euro. And those loans are due in 2024. So, you know, it's, it's just lending money. It's not actually, as far as we know so far, committing it for the long term of the 25 years of the contract. And they're also charging 12% per year interest on that money that they loaned to the company. So that's as far as the investment structure is reported to date, that's what we know. And that's all the money that's got in from private investors, the 100 million, not the 220 that was committed. It might come back later, but at the moment, that's all they've put in themselves. And again, it's nearly all loans at a very high interest and due in 2024. Um, that's all that we know so far. This seems really extraordinary because if you have a state contract that's worth um, three billion and or up to three billion, let's say, uh, or in Ireland's case, probably well over three billion. Uh, and then you sign this deal, say that you're going to put in this money and stuff. And ultimately, you only end up putting in in actual equity two million quid. That's the, the part that really doesn't align with what we were promised by the government at the time uh, and the minister who signed the contract, Richard Bruton, um, he didn't answer my questions. I asked him what happened and he said he's no longer the minister. He can no longer speak publicly about this. So something happened between May 2019, the choice of the preferred bidder and the signature of the contract in November 2019, where the exact terms and conditions were set in a way that allowed this to happen. Now, in the last few days since uh, my reporting and other articles in the Business Post and elsewhere, the Department of Communications has come out and said, we've checked, we've asked our lawyers to check and everything is in line with the contract. So it confirms that the contract itself in November 2019 allowed that. Mm. And, you know, the government says now at this point, yes, the loans are considered as equity, but I mean, a loan is a loan and equity is equity. That's really semantic. But, uh, it's not what people understand in the business world. If you're committing equity, you have money really put in the company that you're not planning to take out anytime soon. And that's not what happened. Mm. Um, do you think that when you were writing all this stuff, because when I was reading it and like following the little you know, the structure of all these different kind of um, entities uh, putting money in and out. Did you get a sense that the department actually knew what you were reporting or was it a surprise to them? I think it, it's, um, it wasn't a surprise to them uh, in terms of the people who are actually following the contract day to day. It took me a while to get some answers and I didn't get the answers to all the questions that I asked, but it went through a, a kind of convoluted structure inside the Department of Communications itself. <laughs> and it seems that there are some people working on that, but at the top, do the ministers uh, follow it closely enough? I'm not sure. There didn't seem to be a, a very strong awareness at the political level of what was going on. and within the, the civil service structure that is directly interacting with the contract, there's probably a knowledge that, yes, that's what the contract says, that's how it was signed, so they can't really object to it. And they have made no effort to make it public, probably because it, it doesn't look 
very good compared to what we were promised politically bef before anything was signed. So it's mostly going under the radar until accounts are filed and uh, journalists start looking into it. And that's a bit of a problem because of the money involved and uh, the impact the project would have on rural Ireland. It should really be completely open, transparent. People should know where their money is going and uh, understand what the result is directly in terms of improvement to the infrastructure on the ground. Mm. And what about the money that's come out of it? You mentioned uh, Tetrad there. Um, and I can't remember which of the companies was one that was set up in Delaware. Quite was that? Is that oh. Yeah, there was a company called Telecom Infra Management and it holds a 5% stake more or less in, in the entire project ultimately. And when you look at where the money flowed uh, at the start in 2020, in January, the, uh, as I said earlier, the money mostly came from Oak Hill advisors, about 54% of all the money that was put in came from them, even though they are not a majority owner of the company. And then that 5% tranche floated around. And when you see where it is now, it can only be in that company, telecom infra management. And I asked about that after a number of questions. I was finally told this company is actually owned by Tetrad and Granahan McCourt. So somehow they obtained a part of the debt funding that was first issued by Oak Hill Advisors and they put it in their own company. Why was that done in this way? It seems very complicated and again, not very transparent for a five person slice that is not that big in itself, but it, it's actually, it makes the difference between having a majority or not in the uh, ownership and investment in the whole project. So it kind of decides, you know, who has the final say at the board table and that's important to check. So it's uh, again, unfortunate that such an important bit of the puzzle is so hard to figure out in uh, in a public project like that. And they've been, Paying themselves fees, though, right? As the as the thing has progressed, yes, and uh, pretty big ones as well. One uh, bill that came from uh, a Granahan McCourt company itself, which is called NBI Co. Um, in sorry, NBI Bitco in the US again. Um, that company charged thirty two point seven million euro uh, just in the first year in twenty twenty. And that was reported to be for the costs incurred in preparing the bid before the contract was signed. So all the years of preparation, the lawyering and all that and, and winning the bid, that was all repaid to this company controlled by David McCourt just in the first few months of operation uh, as subsidies were beginning to come in and the investment from the other partners was coming in. And then there are recurring fees apparently that will be going on into the future. There's uh, several million as well, again, going to companies mostly controlled by Cronenham McCourt and Tetrad. And uh, there's in top of, on top of that, all the interest on those loans that's being charged. So the fees in total represent 38 million in the first year that was charged to the company and actually paid out. It's gone. And then there's, 12 million, you know, 12% interest, as we said before, on the 98 million, it's nearly 12 million that was charged to the company in interest that the investors expect to get back for the money they have lent. And uh, not only that interest is due, but it's not in that case paid out. The money is still in the company, but it is added to an account that uh, in, in, in increases the amount of debt due so it's rolled up into the debt. And that means next year, the interest will be charged not only on the 98 million that was initially advanced, but also on the 12 million interest that was left in there. So every year, the interest becomes more expensive. It's called compound interest. And at the end of six years, uh, at a 12% compound interest, you've doubled the amount owed under a loan like that. That's the, the speed at which interest accrues. You know, 12% mm. sounds like a small two-digit number, but after six years, because the interest stays in there and attracts itself on itself again, uh, yeah, it keeps adding up uh, at a much faster pace. 
it's very expensive debt. And this money that is being paid out, that's coming from the Irish state, right? That's being paid to uh, National Broadband Ireland to do this project. Well, it's debatable. There isn't a, a single line for each euro that says it came from that source and it goes out to that spending. So National Broadband Ireland got two sources of funding in 2020. One of them was investors putting in money. Uh, those big loans. And then the other one was the state beginning to pay subsidies. And there was 42 million and a half subsidies going into NBI in 2020, the first year. So uh, then that money lands in the company. And out of that, 38 million went out in fees and 12 million was charged in interest that will be due in the future. So yes, the, we can say at least the portion of the state subsidy is already going out to the investors. Uh, and we can also say that some money put by some investors is going out to pay others. And their hope, obviously, is that subsidies and commercial revenue in the future will cover that. So it's ultimately our money, either as taxpayers or as um, subscribers to broadband services in the future. Mm. Right. Uh, well, thank you so much for bringing us through all of that. Um, it is uh, kind of wild, I suppose, uh, as, as a story when you step back. But before you go, I just want to ask, um, what has been the political reaction to this? It, it seems to me that the Social Democrats were kind of the only ones on top of it from the get-go. From the get-go, I wouldn't say that. No. Through the whole period until now, that's true that Catherine Murphy, the co-leader of the Social Democrats, has been on top of that before, during, and after the signature of the contract, and especially in recent days, asking for the full contract to be published again and for answers on this structure we've just detailed. At the start, before the contract was signed, uh, we need to remember that Finefol was in the opposition, even though they were in the supply uh, agreement, uh, confidence and supply agreement with Finegale at the time. They were still critical and they did a lot of scrutinizing people like um, Timmy Dooley, who is the Fine Fáil communication spokesperson, Jack Chambers, who is now the chief weapon uh, minister in the government. They were asking very hard questions before November 2019 and before the election that happened in early 2020 in February. So that scrutiny is lost now that Fine Fáil is in government and um, their, you know, their role uh, now that Michal Martin is Taoiseach, is to support the government and make sure that whatever was committed is is being implemented. Uh, that's the role of the government. So that has reduced very much the, the scope of the scrutiny in political arenas. And Sinn Féin recently has been a bit more active. We have heard questions from um, Mary Lou MacDonald herself, um, but that wasn't the case through the period as much. And that leaves us with really the Social Democrats as, uh, as the, the leading questioning body throughout the period. Uh, Labour has asked some questions as well. And then we have um, really Fianna Fáil dropped out and Sinn Féin starting only now. So there was a, a bit of a lull in the volume of questioning uh, ever since the 2020 election. Mm. And I guess there was also um, a controversy in, in 2018 when um, Pat Breen, who was a minister at the time, said he, he met McCourt a bunch of bunch of times and, and invited <clears throat> um, Dennis Nocton to dinner with him and all that kind of stuff. And that kind of died away um, before the uh, negotiations started. But Fianna Fáil were, were absolutely on top of all of that. Um Two, okay, two more quick things. What actual work on the rollout has been completed? So the rollout started late. Uh, according to the management of National Broadband Ireland, they had trouble bringing in uh, crews and equipment from especially UK during COVID in 2020. So instead of 115,000 premises that would have high-speed broadband available by the end of this year, they've slashed that down to 60,000 by half. Uh, of those, we know in the autumn, there were about under 20,000 done. Uh, and we'll need to wait for the final update at the, of the, at the end of this year in the next few weeks to see how much they have actually passed, as they say, which means the fiber is outside your door and you can use it if you want. 
And then uh, in terms of premises actually using the, ser the service, asking for a connection, uh, again, it was a few thousand, uh, the last update, some, something like 3,000. And we need to see how many people take it up now that uh, more you know, availability is there. But it, it is really only just starting. And uh, that I wouldn't necessarily say it won't be caught up on. There is an obligation in the contract to catch up and management has promised to do that. So um, COVID did happen. Uh, we can't really hide that fact. It's a bit early to say how uh, they'll be able to even it out over the next year or so, but it was delayed starting definitely. And uh, it's not there yet. And, you know, my own place, um, we're promised 2023 at this stage. So wow. there's a lot of work to do yet. And finally, Thomas, before you go, and thank you so much for your time on this. I really appreciate it. Um, one of the issues, I suppose, with signing a big contract that's going to take ages um, with uh, uh, on something of this nature is that it's you can't get away from the fact that it, this is about technology and technology evolves and changes. And by the time you roll something out, something else has come along. Um, and a mate of mine was saying recently how... Um, people he knew who were in very, very rural areas uh, in, in the southwest of Ireland were kind of just like, forget about this broad, national broadband plan is never going to happen. And they're actually using um, kind of high-speed internet from the Starlink uh, network, which is Elon Musk's satellite internet thing, right? Um, is there a risk that the technology, you know, the the idea of like digging up, you know, uh, land and putting fibers down is going to seem perhaps a bit ridiculous in about five, 10 years. There is a risk. I wouldn't say there isn't. At the same time, um, Starlink is a hundred euros a month. Yeah. The broadband plan uh, by contract must provide internet at the same price as people in towns and cities. So it would be about half that. And then there's the 500 euro upfront cost to get Starlink as well. That wouldn't be there uh, in the subsidized program. So it's not negligible. And then there's also the reality that uh, fiber is a proven technology. Uh, it's not perfect. It's expensive. But um, if half a million people suddenly subscribe to Starlink in Ireland, which is kind of in proximity to a limited number of satellites in the sky. Will they have the capacity to deliver that? We don't know. Um, so I think there is risk both ways. The government chose one option at the time. It was criticized, but that was the decision. Uh, so it's hard to go back on it. Um, but the risk is there. Yeah, there is no zero risk uh, situation when you're investing in infrastructure for 25 years, whatever it is, really. I mean, we've invested in motorways and now we're telling people to get out of cars. So it's a bit similar, really. Um, Thomas, thank you so much for your work on this. You can follow uh, Thomas's work, of course, uh, on the currency. Um, it is a really, really brilliant, brilliant uh, news resource. And I would highly recommend subscribing um, to get all of the juice, not just on this, but on loads of great stories across um, housing and property and bus or business generally. Um, and yeah, so Thomas, you're doing really, really great work. Um, you're doing the hard yards on this and I'm sure you'll continue and uh, really appreciate your time. I will. Thank you very much, Una. Andrea, what's getting in the sea? This week, um, the regional group and some other, they did a co-sponsored bill of the Fatal Pain, Pain Relief Bill 2021. And it came before the doll the other day. Um, and they were called, it was using, utilizing all the emotional language straight from an American playbook around abortion of uh, like, when it came to abortion of like, given the baby um, pain relief before it was aborted. Um, and it was the, the, the usual suspects of Manny McGrath, Danny Healy Ray, Michael Healy Ray, Patrick Tobin, Eamon O'Keefe, Peter Fitzpatrick, Nell Grealish, um, et cetera, who did it now. It didn't make it through. It was voted down, which is a good thing. But like the, to see these middle-aged men just trying to control women's bodies again, it, like we've had this conversation. We've all voted on it. Get in the sea. 
I'd also like the politicians from Fianna Fáil who campaigned against repeal. Um, I'd love to hear what their point of view is now and how uh, when they hear this kind of language um, spoken in the Dáil, what they feel. Why? Um, what, what do you... Because I, I think that a lot, I like my personal opinion is that some of those politicians in Fianna Fáil took a very unprincipled uh, uh, position on, on the repeal referendum. I think that they, some of them were looking to their um, abstract uh, assessment of their voters and their constituency and their base. And, um, you know, you don't hear much from them now. You know, I think people can obviously change their minds and people mm. can evolve and all that kind of stuff. But like when you hear the likes of Matty McGrath uh, and the way he speaks uh, about women, about women's bodies, about women's rights, you know, w- w- those who opposed uh, reproductive rights for women, that's the team you're on, you know. And I'd lo- I think it would be really powerful if people in Fianna Fáil in particular, obviously there were loads of people in Fianna Fáil who opposed women's reproductive rights during 2018, I think that they could actually um, be voices of reason in this if they could uh, reach out and, I hate that phrase, but if they could maybe... Uh, Connect. Well, just actually give give the public and give their voters um, an assessment of the point of view that they've reached and it might be um, a, a, a piece of communication that would be helpful in uh, calming the ridiculous incendiary uh, type of rhetoric that comes from the TDs that you mentioned there. Mm. I don't know. I just think sometimes like, God, I wonder how they feel now when this is, this, this is the, the, the lot that are left um, talking about the kind of stuff that they actually were supporting in 2018. Okay. Now it's time for It's Bananas. I cannot get over this. Um, and this is like, I kind of feel the acceptance you felt earlier of like, so a planning application. So if anyone in Dublin knows Dublin 8, where all the new market flea markets used to be all the time. So every Sunday there'd be a flea market. And then there was like the indoor flea market. So it was a gorge community thing. There was, there was a food co-op. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and they got planning to get rid of all of that and the whole place has turned into now this big building site. It's literally like builder city at the moment. And um, one of the units that was, that's been built now has per planning permission um, has been submitted to change the market space that was key to it getting planning. So it was like, you can have planning permission once you keep market space in it. They want to change that uh, the planning to a convenience store to have an off license. So essentially like a, you know, a, we know what a, a spa or whatever. A spa yeah. or, or whatever. Um, and so the planning only went through because they were going to keep the planning, uh, the um, market space, but also the artist space that was planned, they wanted to change that to seating for the convenience store. So all the things that the community fall for in the planning time to keep it, if like they're like, okay, if you're going to plan it to pl- like develop this whole area, at least give us this. And now, after they're like, yeah, we'll give you that, they're going back to change it and take it out. Yeah, I mean, I think like the community didn't fall for that, but the planners sure did. You know, and I just think that you you can't trust these kind of um, superficial, the superficial language in these kind of developments. That was a vibrant, you know, brilliant community type space. It was like that. There was very little, uh, there's not a lot happening in that in Newmarket when the dereliction started and people came in and they breathed new life into stuff and they built community around it and they had free markets and co-ops and it was a place to go at the weekend and all that kind of stuff. And then that was kicked out. And now, you know, so I just, I, when, when, when developers and people kind of come in and say, oh yeah, well, we know that this was important, but we're going to do this and we're going to make it just, I just don't, don't, you can't trust them because this is what happens all the time. Change of use that, that completely guts the integrity, any kind of integrity that's left in the space. So 
yeah. it's just so sad. Like I yeah. just like it's obviously going to be appealed by the community, but like I just can't believe that they're like I'm such an uncynical person. I'm like, but they said they're going to do it. They're going to give us an artist face. I'm like, are you fucking pricks? Yeah. Um also regarding bananas, can we have a little moment for Mike Michal Martin's love of bananas in the doll this week? Oh yes. <laughs> like, well, bananas are good. I was like, oh yeah, bananas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well Michal Martin is notorious or not notoriously, infamously um healthy, healthy eater. Is he? Uh, yeah. So uh his love for um potassium, fruit, potassium fruit and veg, uh, nuts and berries. Um, play to him. Yeah, fair play. And now it's time for our fave bits. Uh, my fave bits this week. Uh, I loved, I just love a clever use of marketing and advertising. And Peloton's ad uh, following uh, the, the emotional episode of and just like that uh was turned around in 48 hours the fact that it was done so fast it's so clever it's and it got like because I was like how did they let that brand be in that show and mm. all the questions that came from it it was just a great piece of uh of marketing I thought and really clever and also then I loved their follow-up post which was like a few days after again I think it was on the Monday it was like if we can turn that around, our, our spot around in 48 hours, you can do your workout today. It's like, yes, Peloton. <laughs> I think as well, even though their shares, like the share price fell after the first episode of a, just like that, it's it's a real lesson in terms of how this sounds like we're, I don't know, given lecture and bronze or something, but like how a brand can respond uh, and not screw itself over. Um, or really and- tap into the market in terms of being current with uh, w- with the challenges that have been thrown at us. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yes, that that will definitely be on on slideshows everywhere uh, when it comes to uh, brandy brandy stuff, brandy snaps. Okay. Uh, what's your other fave bit? <laughs> um, my other fave bit is there's a pop-up club happening in September 22 from Temporary Pleasure and they have just been in Barcelona. Oh, dogs love clubbing, obviously. Uh, in doing workshops on temporary clubbing and how to do pop-ups and blah, blah. So I'm really excited of the potential of where that can go for clubbing in Ireland. Fab. And then finally, it's a basic love, but a love nonetheless. Club sandwiches in the sidecar in the Westbury delicious excellent so my fave bits um, table wine I do love a nice little small little wine bar type scenario and table wine in Dublin off Camden Street by the Meet Me in the Morning folks is one of those so get in there and have you see sometimes natural wines can be very tricky sometimes you just uh, want you just, sometimes you just want as you wine. and, and uh, you are the Malbec queen Andrea of course correct um, but nevertheless, uh, it's uh, a good buzz. So check that out. Other voices home at the Guinness Storehouse. Other voices just continue, it's just continue doing it's stuff. Um, really, really great stuff this week. Um, and my other fave bit are <laughs> this is really random, but obviously it's very it's a bit hard to get the Christmas spirit uh, at the moment. What with you know the feeling that we're standing on the edge of a cliff. Um, but I do love the enthusiasm with which the horse and trap folks in Dublin and the horse and carriage people are Christmasifying their vehicles and horses and making things look like Santa sleighs and having loads of twinkly lights and things like that. I love it. I do love it. My favourite bit though was watching, I was watching, going to the Guinness store the other day and so I was in like twinkle land of like, it was all magical. And there's a Santa on a sleigh going around. We were like, yeah. And I was like, oh, try to take a picture. Then he came to a junction. And he was like, you fucking get out of the way. I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> Absolutely perfect. <laughs> um, my final fave bit is how everybody, myself included, is just really, really hanging on for the next season of Drive to Survive. <clears throat> this- yeah, when you say everyone. Well, <laughs> a lot of people. 
<laughs> so uh, we, I will, of course, uh, have spoken about my grow for uh, Drive to Survive on Netflix before. And if you've been following uh, the raucous 2021 F1 season um, and the drama that has been unfolding, uh, that unfolded uh, particularly at Abu Dhabi and people are just like, this is amazing, but where is Drive to Sur- Survive season four? That will document all of this. And I believe it will be uh, mid-March 2022. So uh, that's not too long away. Great. So I'm excited for that. And now it's time for Book of the Week. Book of the Week. Book of the week this week. Um, I've been actually, there's been a lot of beastie books, like very big books. Um, and this is another one <clears throat> that I'm digging into at the moment. You can see it there, Andre. It's a junky one. Oh, and this goodness. is uh, Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. Uh, obviously, this loads of people will already know this book. It's, it's very, you know, it's a massive bestseller and it's very uh, well uh, represented in the best of this. Because mm. it's very timely because they're removing all the Sackler wings from from galleries at the moment. Yes, and so uh, a lot of people may who list who are listening may have read it, or it could be on people's list to get. I'm digging into it now over Christmas. That's my festive festive Jeez. cheer. Um, and I just love Patrick Radenkeefe, who's the author of this book. Uh, people will know him from Say Nothing, amazing uh, book on on the North. Uh, and on uh, the IRA and Jerry Adams and uh, Winds of Change, uh, the podcast you presented about the uh, rumor, quote unquote, uh, that the Scorpions song was in fact written by the CIA. Uh, so yes, Empire of Pain is my book of the week. Um, and uh, if you haven't already dug into it, Patrick Radenkeefe is the best. So, this podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan at Castaway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack and Sarah Fox did all of our design. We will have a Christmas episode for you next week to uh, ease you into the tryptophan coma you will all no doubt be in following the ingestion of large amounts of turkey. Uh, But until then, enjoy the last weekend before Christmas. I actually can't believe that that is (laughs) real. And Andrea, what's our tuna chicken roll this week? The tuna chicken roll this week is Erasure Blue Savannah. Random, Ooh. but stunning. I've been Una Malali. I've been Andrea Horan. And this has been United Ireland. And that was the National Broadband Plan. <laughs> <laughs>